0: Well, good morning. I have to tell you, it is a joy for me to get to be with you all for worship this morning for a number of reasons. Uh, I've enjoyed being with you all in Sunday evenings, but also during my time at Westminster, two of the families who have been most precious to me are the Richards, Joel and Esty and their kids, whom you all sent out after they've been with you for a number of years, and uh, the Wes, Holt and Hattie, whom you have had with you over these past three years. So I just wanted to take this moment to publicly thank you for loving on some people who are very precious and dear to me and to my family. Um, we, are, we are thankful for this body of the church and the way they have cared well for people we love. And as I said, it really has been a blessing and an encouragement to get to come preach on Sunday evenings a few times here, to get to know some of you uh, a little bit through those opportunities. And I'm well aware uh, that it's a bit strange to have somebody sort of parachuting in to preach. And I feel that a little bit more strongly this Sunday than some, because I know you guys are so close to the end of David's story. You feel like you've been walking with him all these years, and then here I come, right before the finish line, just popping in here. Um, so I'm, I'm aware. It can be a little strange. But I am glad to get to be with you all and grateful to study God's Word together this morning. And you've been with David, but, but we're going to reverse a little bit, actually go, go way back, almost to the very beginning to Genesis chapter 3. And we're going to focus on, on the fallout of the fall. A real upper for Mother's Day, I know. Um, but we're going to be picking up in verse 19. God is, is giving his judgment for the consequences of sin. He's talked to the serpents and to the woman. And here we're going to pick up with him finishing speaking to the man. And then we're going to continue through the end of the chapter as God casts out our first parents in consequence for their sin. So please open your Bibles to, I believe it's page 3, pretty close to the beginning there. Um, Genesis chapter 3, and we'll be getting in verse 19. If you will, follow along as I read for us from God's word. This is Genesis 3, beginning in 19. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. O Lord, may the words of my mouth, Lord, may the meditations of all our hearts here this morning be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. You who are, are the very source of all life, Open our eyes to see the glory of your word. Will you grow us abundantly in your love? Amen. Who will deliver me from this body of death? A question comes from the Apostle Paul at the end of Romans 7. And it's the question that looms over you and over me, isn't it? Who will deliver me from this body of death? In fact, I would argue this is the question that has haunted every single human since Genesis 3. Like Adam, like Eve, we can try to hide from this question, but we cannot escape it. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Today, we're going to see both the source of this question and and the solution to it. And really, the first three chapters of Scripture leading up to this point, they, they give us these answers to key, fundamental, basic, crucial questions that we, we all ask as humans. Questions like, like where did it all come from? Like, what was it supposed to be like? And then sadly, here in Genesis 3, where did it all go so very wrong? And here in Genesis 3, we see the true problem with the world, which is our rebellion against our holy God, or to put it in one word, sin. And while there are many terrible results of sin, in Genesis 3, we encounter really, I think, Three key consequences, shame, separation, and death. We see all three of these in our text, and we're going to touch on all of them, but we're really going to focus in on this last one, on death. Because death is, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, death is the last enemy. And ever since Adam and that first sin, you and I, we are born under death's rule. And we see this right away in our text. Look back at verse 19 to to pick up the very end of it. It says there, For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This almost famous funeral verse, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. This is where it comes from. And I know I don't have to convince any of you that death, this last enemy, is all too real. Just... Just over a week ago, another horrific shooting in Texas in what seems like this just endless repetitious cycle of these things. And daily we see murders and overdoses and car accidents and cancer grows in the shadow of our cells. And I wonder, where has the awful reality of death touched down in your life this week, today? You know what it is for me, to be honest with you, Mother's Day is a little bit of a difficult one for Taylor, my wife, and for me. We, we've had a long and difficult road with infertility. We're so very blessed and grateful to have our little son, Theo. But it was a, almost exactly this time last year, just a few days before Mother's Day, that we learned that the second child we were expecting had died. So let me ask, where has death sunk its ugly, horrible claws, into your life right now. And even if he would say, death feels a little bit removed for me in this season, in this stage, every one of us has cells that are slowly wearing out day by day. Friends, death has snuck into our very DNA. Sin is a parasite devouring us, body and soul. It is not the way it was supposed to be. Yet we look around and we cannot escape the conclusion it is the way things are right now. So who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will defeat our last enemy? Today we are going to look honestly at the reality of death, but we are going to rejoice in the hope of promised life in our Savior. My main point for us today, I, I kind of draw it out of Romans 6.23, which, which I think just captures so well what we see here. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is our text. Our sin deserves death, but God offers life in Christ. Therefore, let us respond with faith in him. And with this kind of framing idea of the problem of sin, the the consequence of death over everything, we're going to look at our text with with a few things in mind. God's punishment for our rebellion, his, his promise of hope, And his provision of new life. And we'll conclude at the very end by considering what our response should be in faith. So so God's, his punishment, his promise, his provision, and then our response. And first of all, let us examine this punishment, God hands down, death. And back in Genesis 2, God has warned humans. He says, work and keep the garden, don't eat of that tree. In the day you eat of it, you will surely die And so death is exactly the consequence that we would expect for what Adam and Eve have done in their rebellion. And as we saw, verse 19 confirms this. Look back. You will return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And on a fundamental level, doesn't this just make sense? I mean, we are created for for good, by God, for his glory. We see that throughout Genesis 1, Genesis 2. And so if those things are true, that we are created by God for his glory, then to reject him is to cut ourselves off from the very source of our lives. I heard it said this way once. Sin is this this great unraveling of everything that is good, and its ultimate result is death. And we see this reality, this punishment of death throughout all our pastors. Look at verse 21. God makes garments of skin to clothe Adam and Eve. Here we see a gracious answer to their problem of shame and nakedness. They're uncovered, exposed, and he covers them. But at what cost? Blood and death for the animals he kills to make these coverings. One of my professors brought this home for me in an incredibly sobering way. He talked of, when he was a pastor, there was a young woman who came in for counsel to his his office. And she began to explain to him that she was struggling with self-harm. And when she finished and began to ask, you know, how can you help me, pastor? He said, you know, you may be surprised to hear this, but I actually think you're on to something. And she looked at him in shock. What are you talking about? He said, "Well, well, you see, our sin, our shame, they actually do cost, blood, and even death. But you see, your problem is you can't cover it with your own blood. That won't do the trick. Friends, from the beginning, death and blood are necessary to cover sin and to cover shame. What is it that you are trying to cover yourself with? Let's keep going in our passage. Verses 22 into 23. What is the reason God gives for casting Adam and Eve out of the garden? He says that he expels them in order that they be denied the opportunity to eat of the tree of life, to to gain immortality. Now, we're going to come back to this moment just a little bit later. But I just want you to see here that what God does by casting them out, he is guaranteeing their death in this moment here. That's what's going on. And then finishing out verse 23, look specifically, where is the man cast out? He is cast out to work the ground from which he was taken. Do you hear that echo of verse 19? You will return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. There is this this drumbeat of judgment of death. The wages of sin is death. They are denied immortality of the tree of life, sentenced to return to the ground. And then look at the very last verse, 24. God places cherubim and a flaming sword to guard against any possibility of return to the tree of life. And this actually is really interesting. This gets picked up and carried forward in Scripture in the tabernacle and the temple. Now, if you're like me, it's so tempting to just kind of skip over or at least skim through these specifications for chapter after chapter about the tabernacle, about wash basins and lampstands and curtains and so on and so forth. But I want us to consider those curtains in the tabernacle. Where are they located? They're between God's people and the most holy place where he dwells. And do you remember in Exodus 26 what God commands his people to put on those curtains? He says, embroider cherubim on the curtains between us. This Edenic symbol pulled forward for the rest of their history. These cherubim with their flaming swords, this visual reminder of the consequence of sin. Unauthorized entrance to God's presence results in death. The wages of sin his death. We've seen this abundantly, even in just our few verses here, but I want to show it to you in one last place. Flip ahead, just maybe one page or two, I don't know exactly, but, but to chapter five of Genesis. Listen as I read for you the first five verses of the genealogy that runs from Adam to Noah. And listen to this. It says, this is the book of the generations of Adam When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, male and female he created them, and he blessed them, and he named them man when they were created. Now when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died Now, the first people receiving these words were living in a primarily oral culture, which means a few things. One significant thing it means is that repetition is hugely significant. Now, if we'd read through Genesis 1 through 3, you would know that already, because Genesis 1, repetition after repetition, and God said, and it was good, and the first day and so on and so forth throughout the days of creation. If you're a listener hearing that, it gives you something to say, here is the drumbeat of what's important for me to hear. And a genealogy is full of repetition. I, I actually was tempted to read all of chapter 5 for you. I didn't. You can thank me after the service that I did not subject you to that. But I want you to skim over it with your eyes now, all of chapter 5, to, to look at this repeated formula. It says, so-and-so lived so long and fathered so-and-so and other sons and daughters and so forth. And then beginning with Adam, we get something unique among biblical genealogies. There are a number of genealogies in scripture, but only in this one do we get this little final phrase. Look at at verse 5. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. It's actually, it's all one word in Hebrew, that and he died. It's a single word. And I want you to try to imagine, you are the Israelite audience hearing this and you listen and you hear the repetition over and over. Adam, and he died. Seth, and he died. Enosh, and he died. Kenan, and he died. Like waves crashing over you, the repetition of death as punishment for rebellion, it pummels your ears over and over and over again. The wages of sin is death. Can you feel it sinking from your ears into your heart. God promised death as the consequence of rebellion in chapter 2. Then Adam and Eve sin in chapter 3, and death is emphasized throughout Genesis 3, into 4, into 5, into 6, into the rest of Scripture. Even great David, whom you've been with all these months, you're coming to the end of his story. And friends, he's going to die. It seems that here in Genesis 3 and 5, the last enemy is just gloating over us. And if we're honest, we can't complain about it. Because it's exactly the consequence we deserve. Who will deliver us from this body of death? Friends, turn now with me to look at the hope of God's promise to his people, even from these verses of intense judgment. Because praise the Lord, he does not leave us in our hopeless state of death. Just before our passage, back in verse fifteen, before God confirms the consequence of death in verse 19, prior to that confirmation of death, in verse 15, God promises the great hope of a savior. He says to the serpent, the very father of death himself, the one who lied to the woman and said, You will not surely die. God says in three fifteen to that serpent, he says, The seed of the woman will come and crush your head. In other words, one day, a son of the woman will destroy the last enemy, death. One day, there will be opportunity again for new life. And now, with that clearly fixed in your brain, I want to come back to that moment I mentioned earlier, 22 and 23, those verses. Listen again as I read those for you. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden. To hear the urgency here? God doesn't even finish his sentence. He casts him out. It is almost this picture of in his rebellion and sin, Adam is contemplating taking not only of the, free, the tree of knowledge, but also of reaching out and taking of the tree of life. And perhaps like me, some of you have wondered, what's actually going on? You know, my, my, to be honest, having grown up in the church, my sort of vague childhood understanding of this was, was something like Greek mythology, where the titans, they begin to become so strong and powerful that they, they can rival the gods, and they try to storm Mount Olympus. As if here, what's happening is that man is sort of one step away from equaling God, and so God boots him down the mountain and locks the gate and breathes this sigh of relief, whew that was close which of course is ridiculous and it's heretical but if that's not what's happening in this moment what is going on and I want to put forward to you that this is actually in a moment of amazing grace this is guaranteed death in order to provide the real hope of life because, of course, Adam has not become like God in any essential way. Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God. And he creates everything. He is before, above, beyond all time. There is none like him. Adam doesn't show up till chapter 2, and he's made out of the dust. He can never become a threat to God. But Adam has become a threat to Adam. In his rebellion, he's thinking about taking of the tree of life. And that is not a problem for God. But if Adam takes of that fruit and eats of that tree, he will be irrevocably confirmed in his state of rebellion. Let that sink in as you consider the consequence of death in our world today. When God thrusts Adam and Eve out, when he denies them immortality and guarantees their death. Yes, it is penal judgment, but it is also love and mercy and his plan of redemption on display. He does it for their good. And the same is true for you and for me. Where do you need that reminder today? You see, it's true. Death is not the way things are supposed to be. Death death is an evil twisting of God's good creation. Death is the last enemy. We should never romanticize or trivialize or glorify death. Our Savior does not do that. Notwithstanding... After Adam's sin, you and I would be forever stuck in our sinful rebellion with no hope if not for death. In other words, but for death, we would be trapped, literally, in a living hell. I think Paul captures this idea in 1 Corinthians 15 when he uses the illustration of a seed. And he says, what is sown does not come to life unless it first dies. Speaking of the resurrection body... We will one day have. So actually, Adam's only hope on the far side of his sin is that he dies in order that he might be raised to new life by the seed of the woman. And now I want you to think back to the genealogy in chapter five that that rhythm of, and he died, and he died, and he died. It actually becomes something of a rhythm of hope in its own way. And I want to stay in the genealogy. Perhaps some of you were wondering about this as I read just that first bit. I want to turn our attention to the short account of Enoch, verse 21 of chapter 5. Listen as I read this for you. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. (coughs) And Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. I want you to think like those oral culture Israelites. Over and over and over you've heard and he died, and he died, and he died. But not this time. Excuse me. <clears throat> this time you hear the shocking words. Whoa. <clears throat> so shocking I got choked up apparently. <clears throat> this time you hear the shocking words. And he was not, for God took him. <clears throat> Here is this thunderbolt of hope, the disruption of the cycle of death, the promise that the last enemy will not have the last word. And this is something a professor of mine, Dr. Gibson, pointed out. If you count, Enoch is the seventh generation of man. And likely you know the number seven is significant in Scripture this number of fulfillment, perfection, completion. We're going to come back to Enoch the person a little more specifically at the end, but his placement here as the seventh in line is significant because it stands in stark contrast to the seventh in line on the other side, if you will. Because Eve's first son, and surely there must have been hope when Cain was born, that he would be the seed of the woman. But her first son, Cain, is not the hope for savior. He turns out to be a savage brother slayer. And the seventh generation on Cain's side is Lamech, who is this extreme picture of broken creation, twisting of the right order, of violence, and of death. So when we contrast these two seventh generation sons, Lamech and Enoch, ultimate death, ultimate life, we get this stern warning. And we must choose, who will we follow? The course of death or the course of life? Now, that's an obvious question, right? Of course, we would choose the course of life. But the irony is that on the far side of sin, to choose death in this life is actually to live for yourself. To choose life is to die to yourself, to to give everything over to our Lord. Because we already have death in ourselves, but we must turn to another for life. Who is this one to whom we turn? Who will deliver us from this body of death? We find it in Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ. In Jesus, we have the promised seed of the woman, born in order that he might bring us to new life. Come marvel with me at our Savior. Remember verse 21, when God covers Adam and Eve, their sin and their shame and their nakedness, he covers them in these garments, blood and death. But Jesus, who is the perfect one, dies naked and shamed, pouring out his blood So that his people might have their shame forever covered by his righteousness. What about verse 24? God separates Adam and Eve from himself with this cherubim and flaming sword in between. And this is carried forward in scripture with the curtain. The symbol of judgment, of separation with the cherubim. But what happens in the moment of Christ's death? Matthew 27. Behold, the curtain of the temple... With the cherubim in the middle was torn in two from top to bottom. That means that picture of judgment, of separation, the flaming sword, it has fallen in judgment on Christ in that moment. And it's as if the cherubim steps out of the way and Christ has paved at last the pathway into life and into the Lord's presence again. And if you doubt this reality of new life, just keep reading in chapter 27 of Matthew Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. And do you remember what it says? It says, The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Are you not blown away by this? Except we shouldn't be surprised. In that moment, death, the last enemy, is defeated decisively. I love the title of John Owen's book on the atonement, The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. What else should we expect by Christ conquering death that there would be this ripple effect, a surge of life breaking forth? And as for Enoch, Christ is the true fulfillment of that ultimate picture of the little glimmer of life we get from Enoch. Some of you know, my dad died of cancer 16 years ago. On his grave, we simply put, pulling out of 1 Corinthians 15, in Christ, death is swallowed up in victory. So what is God's provision for the power of sin? Who will deliver us from the body of death? Who will destroy the last enemy? It is not David whom you've been with. It is great David's greater son. It is Christ. Alone. And I want to close by considering one final question. What must our response be to this good news? Simply put, faith in our Savior. Did you notice this in our text today? It's the one verse we haven't talked about yet, verse 20. Look back at that. It says The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. We're so used to saying Adam and Eve, we can rush right past this verse where Eve receives her name without really thinking about the significance of it. But do you see the faith on display in this moment? Because verse 19, the last thing they hear is, You are dust, and to dust you shall return. And it's as though he turns from hearing that and responds by naming his wife Eve in that very moment. Because though verse 19 is the last echo, it's not the only thing Adam has heard. He's also heard verse 15, that the seed of the woman will one day crush the serpent, defeating the last enemy, Death. So when he names her Eve, the mother of all living, he is claiming the hope of the promise that someone else, the seed of this very woman, will come and call us back into the Lord's presence at last. I can't think of a better way to celebrate Mother's Day, whether you have loved or loathed, or lost your own mother, or or longed to become one, I can think of no better hope to cling to than the hope of Eve as the mother of all living. Adam knew his desperate need for the seed of the woman. He believed God's promise, and in faith he named his wife Eve, the mother of all living. Friends, happy Mother's Day. What about Enoch? Hebrews 11 tells us, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found, for God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God, and without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. So again, we see clearly, what should our response be? Faith, like Enoch. I mentioned my dad earlier. I want to, as we consider what our response should be, I want to read to you briefly from his letter that he wrote for his memorial service to be read there. He said, as I have walked through the valley of the shadow of death, I have walked hand in hand with Jesus, the one who has already walked through the valley and come out the far side alive. And as I hold his hand, I trust him, for I too am raised with him, for this was his purpose in walking the path, to raise those who have trusted in him. His death on a cross, humiliating though it seemed, it was his glory. For this was how he defeated our true enemies, sin and death. If you struggle with faith, let me encourage you that in the hardest moments of my life I have faced, he has been there and death has been defeated. Let us then live out of grace in Christ. I have often thought of coming to heaven as Jesus standing at the finish line of a race, awaiting those who have looked for him, trusted in him, pursued him. But I see that it isn't a race for me to finish first or alone. It has always been a race for us to finish together, arm in arm, having encouraged one another in the faith. Jesus is gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Trust in him with all your heart, for he is faithful. Scripture makes clear that the righteous shall live by faith, and that is my charge for you today. Respond to a risen Lord with faith not turning it into a work as though that's how you save yourself. Scripture makes clear it's by grace alone, through faith, which itself is a gift to you. But Scripture also makes clear that the faith gifted to us must work itself out actively. So what does it actually look like? Search out your sin. Confess it to the people around you. Acknowledge death as the right and just consequence you deserve. And believe that there is life in the seed of the woman alone who has defeated the last enemy. And I know, I know that a call to have faith can sound sometimes like an impossible task. I am not telling you to grin and bear it. I am not telling you there's no room for, for doubt or fear. I'm not telling you to be a super Christian who's never discouraged. I'm telling you to find ways like Adam to claim the hope that we have, the promise of life in Christ in the face of sin and death. So maybe it's, it's just taking a, a sticky note And writing, Adam named his wife Eve, or just Eve, and putting it on your microwave, or your fridge, or your desk, so that each day you were reminded of that hope from the beginning. Maybe it's reading those three verses about Enoch, when you're sitting in the doctor's waiting room, worrying, what are the results going to be? Maybe it's praying that beautiful prayer, I do believe, Lord, help my unbelief, in the face of the death of a loved one, the waves of tragedy we see on the news. Start with something small, but pick something and claim the hope that you rightly have in Christ and live in him alone and invite others in. I want to close here at the very end by contrasting the first Adam from the last Adam. The first one in Genesis 2, God God forms him out of the dust and he breathes life into him. And in that moment, he comes to life. But listen to how Paul describes the contrast between the first and the last Adam in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Ultimately, as we saw in the genealogy, the first Adam gave up the breath he'd been gifted, and he returned to the dust because of his sin and his rebellion. But what is it that Jesus does? Yes, he too Goes down into the grave, but after three days, his dead body, uncorrupted, breathes out with his exhalation of new creation. And John 20 puts it this way Christ places his spirit upon his disciples by breathing on them. The first Adam passively received breath and became a living being. The last Adam, Jesus, became a life-giving spirit and actively breathed life into his followers for all generations. There is only life in Christ and in him alone. If you are not a believer today, will you receive this breath of new life by faith in the Son, the only one who can and who has conquered the last enemy? And friends, if you are a Christian, will you inhale deeply the grace of new life you have been given? And will you live out of your faith in the one who has forever conquered the last enemy, death? Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for your plan of redemption, executed in Christ, who himself lived and died and rose again, that we might have new life in him. Oh, would you give us hearts that would believe that, that would live by that faith, that would have such hope in the face of a broken world where death seems to be all around us. May we live as those who have hope, And may that hope spill out from us to those around us. I pray this in the power of Jesus' name. Amen.